Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning, church. We awake? All right, let's do it. I'll give you a moment to turn to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 7 through 13. Let our awesome worship team uh, get to their Bibles as well. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie... Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of the trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, Give us your spirit to hear. Give us by your Holy Spirit's ears to hear your word, Lord, to this little church in Philadelphia. Lord, every church so far, there's been something about it, Lord, that we could identify with so clearly. Something, sometimes a sin that we need to to deal with. Or maybe it was a heart issue. Um, But this morning, Lord, we see a, a church who was insignificant in many ways, that was weak, that was small, Lord. Speak to our hearts this morning about what you would have us do and be. Convict us, empower us, give us ears to hear, to be transformed by your word, by the words of Jesus, the one who is true, Lord. Please bless our time together, Lord, and let it all be and everything we be to the glory of Jesus. Amen. So this morning, we're going to look at the church of Philadelphia. 
and it is 100% okay to just pronounce it Philadelphia. Right? Okay. You're going to hear me pronounce it different ways as well. And so let's start by looking at the church itself. It is 25 miles southeast of Sardis. It was the farthest city eastward and inward, and therefore it had the, the name that it was the gateway to the east. This is a gateway city. In AD 17, there was a great earthquake that leveled the city. And this has happened a couple of times over its history. Earthquake region, right on a fault line. Earthquakes happen all the time. AD 70, the whole city was destroyed. Emperor Tiberius, the emperor at that time, found out about this, and he was very nice about it. He did something um, quite extraordinary. He told this city that they no longer had to pay taxes until it was rebuilt, which if you know Rome, that's a huge deal. Not only that, he sent them aid to help them rebuild this city, and so Philadelphia was rebuilt successfully. Consequently, their appreciation to Emperor Tiberius for this quickly turned into worship. And so this is how this church, or, or this city, I'm sorry, became emperor worshipers. This is where their whole history begins to change. Now this city was founded by Adelus Philadelphus in honor of his brother Eumenes. He loved his brother. And this whole city was about letting everybody know how much he loved his brother. And so this city was called the city of brotherly love, which, if you know Philadelphia in the United States, still uses the same moniker. Now, this city was also founded as a missionary city. The whole point of this city and its founding was to spread Greek culture, Greek manners, morals, everything Greek, missionary city. So we have a city that's a gateway city, and it's a missionary city. And you probably already know from all the rest of the letters that this is going to tie into everything Jesus is going to talk to them about, right? It's all beautiful the way the Lord uses the context of the church to then speak to them. Gateway missionary city. So what about Philadelphia, the church? There are three things we know about it from this text. The first is that they had little power. Verse 8b, I know that you have but little power. Now, Jesus doesn't say explicitly what that is, doesn't mention anything by name, which means they were probably, probably had little power in every area of their church. I mean, for Jesus to point it out, we have to realize that that, that, that was significant about this church, just what they were like. Most scholars believe that it was a small church. I mean, a small church had little money, little to no influence in a missionary city of Greek culture or amongst the emperor cult or amongst the synagogue of Satan. They would be at the very bottom of the power struggle in that city. Second, though, it was faithful. The end of uh, verse 8, we read, Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And yet, despite people and resources, this church is rich in faith in Jesus. They lived out their faith, and apparently they were asked, I'm guessing probably not nicely, to deny their faith, because Jesus mentions that. You have not denied the faith. They must have been something about this situation that was incredibly stressful, that, that would make them want to deny their faith. And yet, third, 
Philadelphia has done no wrong. There is no verse pointing out anything that they have done wrong that they need to change. Even when little power is mentioned, it's not an insult. Jesus is not saying, well, you know, hey, if you guys ever get some more power, I can use you. No, it's more of a compliment. You guys have little power, but you guys have faith. I see your works that you do. You were faithful, and nothing needed to be changed. Philadelphia, along with Smyrna, are the only two churches in Revelation that don't have an issue that needs to be addressed. Also, the fact they have in common is that the synagogue of Satan is present. And we'll see throughout Revelation, maybe we'll talk more about it next week, but there's sort of a chiasm that the churches form like this triangle and they match up with each other. The three on top have some serious issues, but it's more complex than that. They got some serious good things as well. And so these two churches, Philadelphia and Smyrna, are the ones that are the same. They have no issues. But they do have the synagogue of Satan in common. You see this in verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and not Jews, but lie. And so here we have a little church with little power who is being faithful to the Great Commission to spread the name and news of Jesus. And so what can we learn as an example from this city to be missionaries into a city of missionaries that are presenting the message that is not the Christian message? Right? We have this war going on of missionaries. The city and the culture are trying to proclaim one thing, and this church with little power is trying to proclaim the opposite. So what, what can we learn and how to proclaim to a counterculture the truth of Jesus. I believe we find the answer in the personal address of Jesus in verse 7. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. And so there's three parts to this. The first is that he is the Holy One. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is different. He is set apart. He is the one. What does that mean? He is unique. Holy, completely separate from creation as its creator. And it starts here by mentioning his words, which means his words are set apart and his words are holy and his words are different. What about the words of Jesus are different and set apart and holy than anybody else's? They are true. The words of Jesus are true. And so what does it follow up with? Number two, he's the true one. Talk about being set apart from the world and being holier than anything else. It's because he's true. His name represents truth. In contrast, we have seen the synagogue of Satan are a bunch of liars. The imperial emperor cult, their worship and their movement is a lie. Anything that contradicts the words of Jesus is a lie. Just as if anybody were to tell this church that they're too little, there's not enough people, they don't have enough money, they don't have enough strength, if somebody were to tell them that, that would be a lie. They did have a power. They had the greatest power. They had truth. They had the one who is true. And the one who is true, it says, has a key. He 
has the key of David. Now, this is the key to the passage, pun intended. According to verse 9, he has the key, he has the power to let anybody in, keep anybody out, and we get that. We know how keys work. We don't need an exposition on doors. We get that. But the question we all have, I think most of us have, is what is the key of David? I think we can imagine our heads what it would look like. I'm thinking like a star of David with like the key part under it. But that's not what's happening here. And so to better understand what the key of David is, we have to look at the Old Testament. Remember, whenever we don't know something or we're trying to figure something out and we don't know what the key of David is, we don't go to the newest newspaper to get our information. We go to the Old Testament, which is going to tell us exactly what the key of David is. And we find this in Isaiah chapter 22, verses 20 through 22. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him, uh, which, which brings to mind uh, chapter 1, and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. There it is. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. So there's our reference. This isn't the first time we've seen the key of David in the Bible. Now, I, I imagine a lot of us don't spend a whole lot of time in Isaiah. It's, it's a big, intimidating book, right? But, but here's where it is. And so now that you know that this key belonged to Eliakim, is that helpful? Maybe not, because that just raises another question. Who's Eliakim? Right? And so it's, and that's okay. It's, that's okay. In 701 BC, the Assyrians came to lay siege against Jerusalem. Hundreds of thousands of troops came to lay siege to destroy Jerusalem. They had already destroyed the northern kingdom. And they come up to the gates, and there's people standing above the gates. A lot of people, but three of them we know by name, which is the first one is Eliakim. He's always the one that's mentioned first, Eliakim and Shebna, and Joah. So him and his buddies, they stood there as the Assyrians mocked them. Just mocked the people of God for days. Just said all these horrible things. They, just, they tried to like flex on them. They told them, it says even in 1 Kings, your God like isn't powerful. The Assyrian God has never been stopped. No one has ever stopped our God. Your God is tiny. And so they're trying to intimidate, right? They're trying to intimidate the people at the gates to go tell the king that he needs to be scared. And so this reminds me, if you've ever seen pro wrestling, this is what this reminds me of. The Assyrian troops are just trying to get in their face. You have no idea how I'm going to destroy you. Our God is bigger than your God. Our God's going to win. They go as far as to say that they will make Israel so hungry and thirsty that they will eat their own dung, and drink their own urine. 1 Kings 14.10, and you don't have to memorize that. So how did Eliakim respond to this? He stared at them. He doesn't get caught up in it. He doesn't get distracted. He 
stares at them. Him and his boys do not respond. And then Eliakim goes and tells Hezekiah, who is the king, everything that they've said. And Hezekiah panics, rightfully so. They're up against hundreds of thousands of troops that have never been stopped. Hezekiah freaks out, and Hezekiah then prays to the Lord, Lord, I'm freaking out, like, please, they said their God is better, like, that, that has to bug you. And so the Lord answers, not King Hezekiah, but tells Isaiah then to tell Hezekiah that he heard. Isaiah, tell Hezekiah that I heard him, I'm going to deal with it. And the Lord deals with it. That night, all the enemies of the Lord, all their lies, all their untruth, all their arrogance is silenced. 185,000 Assyrian troops are destroyed, killed by the angel of the Lord. And all that is found in Isaiah 36 and 37. If you guys do devotions, you know, maybe read that as a family. It's wonderful. And so Eliakim stood like a pillar against the enemies of the Lord, did not back down, stood his ground. And he receives the key of David from the Lord, which actually isn't a key. It's not somewhere on the earth lost. Like it wasn't a key, it was authority. It's the authority. And so in this case, the Lord says, Eliakim has the authority over the gate, the door to the house of David, to Jerusalem. Because he was faithful and loyal and stood for the Lord, he will be in front of the gates and controls who goes in and out. And if you've ever wondered after reading that, hey, I wonder what happened to that key. Jesus has it. Why does Jesus mention having, having this key? Well, he's the king on the throne of David. He is the one who now controls everything that comes in and out of his kingdom. And he received this power by his resurrection. Now, just before his death, what did Jesus do? He faced down his enemies. He stared at them face to face, came down from heaven. Talk about getting down and staring at somebody's face came down from heaven, put on flesh to just stare at the face of his enemies. And how does he respond when he is insulted and his God is mocked and his relationship is questioned and everybody makes fun of him? What does he do? He doesn't say anything. He goes quietly like a lamb to the slaughter, faces down his enemies, does not respond to them, and he lets God handle it, which happens with his resurrection. In the resurrection, Jesus receives the keys to death in Hades and the key of David. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the door. And Jesus is the one with the, king, with the keys. What does that all mean? Jesus has all the authority. All that to say, Jesus has all the authority. And if you're counting, he has three keys at this point in Revelation. All have to do with authority. Now, this ties directly into the mission of the local church to proclaim the gospel. We face a world of vocal, angry, intimidating opposition in person, online, in our families, at work, you name it. We face opposition of those who are what? Against the truth and just spewing lies and trying to flex and intimidate against us. 
And so how is the, the, the little church, the small church, to be grateful to the, the Great Commission? Verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And so here we find two ways that little, small, insignificant church can participate in the Great Commission, to be missionaries. And the first is evangelism with trust. With trust. I know we've talked about evangelism before, but I think really the point of Jesus saying he's the one that's true is this is a trust issue. And so when you do evangelism, do you trust the process of what is taking place? Trust in Jesus for the results of evangelistic work. When he talks about this key, he doesn't say stop. He doesn't say stop telling people. I'm the one who has the key anyway. Just let me let them in and out. Don't worry about it. He says, no, I see your works, and because I have the key, I am opening the door to your success. He doesn't tell them they have to get bigger first before they can make an impact in the kingdom. He says, go, share. I've opened the doors to your success. People are going to be saved None of those people who are saved are going to ask how big that church was where they heard the, the awesome news of the gospel. I can't imagine how encouraged this church must have been. This is really the emotion that I got from reading this text. Imagine being that church. Imagine, this is going to be difficult, but imagine being a small church. And then for Jesus to say, I see you. I see you guys. I see your works. There's not many of you. You're not powerful, but I see what you're doing. And what is Jesus' response to that? He says, I will be your strength. I will be your success. Right? He mentions that they're weak to then say, I've opened the door. But no one else can open the door. It doesn't matter how strong you are. If I control the door, you little church, you do your thing. You do your works. I'll worry about the door. And oh yeah, it's already open. This church had to be psyched. The Lord was going to bless their works. This should encourage us and every church in the world today. The results of sharing the gospel are completely in the hands of the Lord. It says over and over here. We just have to keep his word and proclaim his name. And don't deny his name. We must trust in the name of the one who is true. We must be true to the one who is true. We must be true to the one who is true. There are two ways we do this. The, worst, the, the first is by following the words of Jesus. It is one thing to say we believe, and it is another to back up that claim by our actions. What's one of the biggest hindrances to the spread of the gospel in our culture today? People who say they're Christians and don't act like it. And is that an excuse? Sure. But it's also a reality. We can't preach one thing and then do something that's completely opposite. And so do our lives reflect a biblical worldview? Do our lives reflect a biblical worldview? What dictates everything we do? If Jesus walked into our houses and listened to our conversations, would they be different from the conversations or houses of his enemies? Or would the only difference be a cross on the wall or maybe a couple of 
Bibles with dust on them on the coffee table? Would our lives reflect love and trust of him? Second, we must not deny his name. And I think this one seems simple. Like, okay, that's not bad. Just don't deny his name. That seems like the simplest of the applications here. But again, it must have been a big deal to this church. How hard it must have been for Jesus to commend them on the fact that they just didn't deny, not even proclaim, but just the fact they wouldn't deny his name. The pressure must have been great. It must have been an overwhelming trial. I think this is what's hinted at in verse 10, where it says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the world to try those who dwell on the earth. And so they already went through a trial so bad, they don't have to go through the next. How bad must have it been that they don't have to go through the next trial? Now, there are some who would say that, well, you know, is that verse talking about the possibility of a rapture? I don't think so. There's no rapture in Revelation. And another reason I believe that is because this whole passage has to do with their enemies. And second, remember, who's the parallel church in Revelation? It's Smyrna. Smyrna had nothing wrong with it. And what did Jesus say is going to happen to them? They're going to get martyred. And so if you have two churches that are doing excellent, that can't be a rapture reference if half of them are being martyred. Not only that, if that was the case in this verse, then we could just stop reading. They would stop listening. Oh, okay, we're not going to be here? Okay, cool. Like, who's going to pay attention to the rest of that? And we will be talking about the rapture within the next couple of weeks, just, just so you know. And so Jesus today, he's looking for those who will stand up for his name and not deny his name. Our culture wants us to deny his name. Our culture wants us to deny his existence, right? What do our enemies call themselves amongst men? Well, that's a long list, but um, one of them would be like, atheists, right, or agnostics. I mean, their whole identity is based on the fact that God doesn't exist, or they would say that God doesn't exist. And so we, we can't deny his existence or his name, even in a society that mocks Christians just like Eliakim was mocked. We have to stand up strong and just accept, even if there's hundreds of thousands of intimidating soldiers barking at us, we can't bow the knee, we can't deny the name Jesus wants those who will proclaim his name is the true way. Speak the truth. That's what Jesus is asking us to do. Do you believe that I am true, that I am the true one? Then just speak the truth, even in the face of opposition against that truth. So don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged, church, that we're small. And don't be discouraged by the lies of the enemies, right, of, of our enemies, of the enemies of God. One of the trials of our day is the attack on truth. Right? What does the enemy want to do? He wants to get us to say things that are not true, are true, or vice versa. And so we must not do that. One of the ways we stand up for the name of Jesus is by standing up for truth. 
one of the easiest ways in our society to then uh, be missionaries and evangelize is what? The subject of truth. What is the conversation that we are having, right? It's about identity and about truth. What a wonderful way to say, no, I will not lie, and I'll tell you why I will not lie, because I believe what is true. Perfect segue to then be missionaries to a culture that is fighting truth. But where does the small church find the strength to do this? The small church finds strength in the promises of Jesus. Now, I love these here. There's actually a lot of them here. And I really thought long and hard about making this church a two-part church. But no, we're just, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on a couple of these promises because there is a lot of promises in this text. And the first is that the enemies of God will receive justice and mercy. Now, I don't know about you. This motivates me. Verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Sounds good. I mean, if we're just being honest, we want to be nice, but we also, like, that appeals to us. It's okay that our enemies are going to bow down before us, and they have to admit yeah, I guess God was real. And yes, he did love you. Sounds great. The problem is, well, it's not really a problem, but something to consider is that they will then experience the same fate as the Assyrians. Death. They will experience the second death. Right? Chapter 1, verse 18. Jesus has the keys of death in Hades. And so on the one hand, we could be encouraged by both of these. It's okay on the one hand to be encouraged by the fact that our enemies will bow down to us and tell us that we were right. That sounds awesome. That we will be avenged. Right? As we go through the rest of Revelation in a couple of weeks and we really get into some of that weird stuff, right? One of the big themes of Revelation is vindication. Christ will be vindicated against his enemies and we will be vindicated against all the attacks and hostility towards his church, which he loves. And so it's okay to be excited about the vindication. That's okay. But there's also probably a part of you that wishes some of them could be saved, right? After all, we were enemies of God too. How quickly we forget where we were. We were enemies of God just like they were. God, by his mercy and grace alone, gave us the gift of faith. We didn't know where the door was. We didn't know who he was. He called us to himself, paid our entrance fee, and brought us in as enemies. While we were enemies. And so that has to make us look at this text a little differently. Our first thought can't be the destruction of our enemies. Is it going to happen? Yes. Is it okay to be excited about that? Yes. But that can't be our first thoughts that our enemies will be destroyed. We must consider the salvation of our enemies. Let's let Jesus decide who's going to come in 
and come out. And let us just proclaim the truth. The truth is we were enemies as well. And then he called us in. He controlled the gate. He let us in. Let the Lord deal with his enemies. Trust in the Lord that he knows who his enemies are and trust that he will deal with them just like Eliakim and Hezekiah and Isaiah trusted in the Lord. And the Lord took care of his enemies. Now, one of the things I love about this passage in all the allusions to Isaiah, including the bow down part of this, is that there's three verses in Isaiah that, that reference this, the bowing down of the enemies before God and the people of God. All three of those references in Isaiah have at least part of that context is the enemies of God coming to worship God. One of these, we'll just look at one, Isaiah 60, 14. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. This is obviously what's being referenced here. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Now, if you read this whole context here, what is happening is the enemies here are coming to bow down and admit you guys were right. But what they're doing in this moment is a confession. And so part of the bowing down of the enemies of the Lord is bowing down not just to us, but with us. I mean, I get, it gives me chills. I'm excited about this. Right? The enemies of the Lord are going to come bow before us. You were right about the Lord. This is the holy city. This is Zion. And they're not just bowing about to be judged. They're bowing with us. And so we need to let the one who is holy and true and has all the authority decide destinies. Let him decide that. Let us just make his truth known. The second promise here that we're going to look at is that we will be pillars. We will be pillars in verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. And so what do pillars do? Well, a pillar has a firm foundation, right? Firm foundation. It stands tall and it holds up. That's what a pillar does often beautiful and, and unique. And if you've ever seen ruins like those of Philadelphia, ruins, what is still standing? It's the pillars, right? Absolutely. Even after many earthquakes in this region, after thousands of years, and these are the ones in that city, those pillars are still standing. Jesus is looking for pillars that are going to last forever. Do you know what Jesus does when he finds a pillar for his temple? Oh, we just read it. Puts his name on it, right? Jesus belongs to me, purchased. This pillar's mine. The second thing he does is he declares who it belongs to. God writes God on it, belongs to God. 
Third, writes its destination on it. This is where I'm going to put it. It's the new city, the new Jerusalem. Bought, purchased by Jesus, belongs to God, going to the new Jerusalem forever. Jesus is looking for these pillars. Church Philadelphia was a small church too. Yet Jesus never questioned their size. Never said they had to get bigger or better or anything. He commends their faith. Commends their faith how? During trials, during patient endurance. He commends their faith during a trial. And then he, he doesn't promise them to grow. He doesn't say, oh, hey, I see you. I'll grow you guys any larger. What he says is, I've opened the door. I'm going to use you to grow the kingdom. In its brief history, this church, this small church, has faced many trials. The foundations have been shaken, damaged, done, right? We just look around. As a church, a lot of us feel like the picture of the building of Philadelphia, right? I mean, as a church, if we're being honest, if we were to say what we feel like, this is probably what we feel like. Yet, when we take inventory of the health of this church, of what feels like ruins, the question we need to ask ourselves is, what does Jesus see? How does Jesus view this situation? When all that remains are a faithful few who are trying desperately to hold this church up, when it doesn't seem like there's anything else but people trying to hold this church up, what does Jesus see? According to this verse, it says that Jesus sees pillars. If nothing else, Jesus looks at this church and he sees pillars who can't be shaken, whose faith hasn't been shaken, who have stood the test of time and when everything has seemed to fall apart, there's some who are still standing. And I don't know what the future of this church is going to be. All churches have a lifespan. All churches close. Every church in this city will shut its doors at some point, unless the Lord comes. In which case, prove me wrong, Lord. Please come. But when the Lord looks at us, he sees pillars. And although I don't know the future of this church, I do know that the Lord can use pillars. That he can use those who are going to stand for him no matter how hard it gets, no matter how... The, how difficult the trial is. If you are going to stand firm and stand tall and give it your all, Jesus sees that and he can use that. In fact, he has a place for such a person in eternity to hold up his everlasting temple. So let us be encouraged, church. Let us not worry about our size. Let us go out into Bakersfield and be conquerors. Let us stand, if nothing else, just stand in opposition to the lies of our culture and of this world. Let us stand in truth and for truth of the one who is true. 
the one who is holy and true, Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, you know our hearts, Lord, as a church. You know the history of the church, and you know that many of us do feel like that, whatever that building was in Philadelphia. But it gives us comfort to know that you see us that you see those who have remained when the trials have come, when the difficulties have come, and for whatever reason, some others aren't here. There's a bunch of pillars here, Lord, who want to stand for you. We don't know what that looks like, but we do know for certain that we're ready to stand for you, that we're ready to be pillars in Bakersfield, in Kern County, to hold up and build your kingdom around, Lord, for your glory. Use us for your will and for your glory, Lord. And then use us in your temple for eternity where we get to dwell with you forever and never have to shed a tear again or be frustrated again or fight lies. We will be with the one who is holy and true. May that be our comfort. May you be our strength, Lord. And Lord, may you give us wisdom. You know exactly where we are as a church. May you give us wisdom in how to best bring you glory. Give us wisdom on how to be the healthiest sheep to proclaim your kingdom and serve your kingdom, Lord. We love you. We love the one who is holy and true. Thank you for opening the door to save us, Lord. We didn't even know where the door was. You did all the work, and we run through it, Lord. And we spend our lives running to you, Lord. You are worthy. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.